So if you will, turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We will be looking at verses 18 through 20 this morning. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. As you are turning there, I am going to read our text. So if you will, listen and follow along. Okay, there we go. Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 20. Listen to the word of the living God. Actually, I'm going to start with verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. So, we are um, uh, looking at this passage of text. This is actually a, a part of a hymn. Uh, m- most students of Scripture have identified this section of text, verses 15 through 20, as a hymn. And in this hymn, or, um, Paul is presenting to us the preeminent, the exalted Christ. In the letter to the Colossians, Paul wastes no time in addressing this issue, the issue that Christ is preeminent. So he, he, Paul does his little introduction, not his little, he does his introduction, he greets people, he gives a thanksgiving and a prayer, and then immediately he jumps in to the preeminence of Christ. You see, any other words, any other encouragements, any other admonishings are empty if this issue, that is the preeminence of Christ, is not established. So in order for Paul to move forward in what he is going to say, it is paramount that he establishes the preeminence of Christ. And church, so it is with our lives as well. Whether it be from ethics or church government, our view of Christ is in influences how we act. And so if we have a low view of Christ, we will have a low view of church. We will have a low view of morality. We will have a low view of a a variety of different things. And so Paul begins by presenting Christ as above 
all things. That is, Jesus Christ, using Paul's words, is preeminent. That is, Paul, Jesus is supreme. And last week, one of the things we saw is that Christ is preeminent in creation. He is preeminent or supreme over creation. And what we discussed is that he is the designer, the creator, and the sustainer of all. He designed creation. He created creation. And he sustains all things are held by in the palm of his hand. In John chapter one, verse three, we we see this so clearly. Verse three, all things were made through him. Speaking of Christ, all things were made through him. And without him, without him was not anything made that was made. And in Hebrews chapter one, three, we, we see how Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. We see Christ as creator and sustainer of all things. Paul puts this truth out, presents this truth to refute the lies of the false teachers who have infiltrated the church at Colossae. They were teaching that Christ is prominent, but he is not preeminent. That is, we should respect Christ. We should honor Christ. We should um, have a high view of Christ. We should give priority to Christ. But Christ is not preeminent. Christ is not supreme over all creation. In fact, he is just another created being. Paul is addressing these lies, these false teachings. As I said, they taught that Jesus was prominent, a man to be respected, but not preeminent. They taught that Jesus was one of many emanations from God. There is the pure God who made all, who, there is the pure God, and then out of this pure spirit God flowed many different emanations, lesser gods, if you will. And Jesus is one of these lesser gods, one of these lesser emanations that found its source in the one true God. Paul is countering that, saying, no, Jesus is the one true God. He is preeminent over all things. Your teachings are false. And so he is putting Christ as the Lord of all. And so Paul begins this this body, the body of this letter with a hymn that is arguably one of the most important descriptions of the person and work of Jesus Christ. In this hymn, verses 15 through 20, one could easily argue the most important descriptions of the person and work of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. I would say maybe a parallel would be found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Last week, what we did was we looked at the first stanza, stanza one of this great Christ hymn. Today, what we're going to do is we are going to consider the second stanza. Uh, so, in the second stanza, what, we, what Paul is going to describe is that Jesus is preeminent over the new creation. Stanza one, Jesus is preeminent over creation. Stanza two, Jesus is preeminent over the new creation. And this new creation is encapsulated in the church. Jesus is put forth as the head of the church, the new creation. This new creation we are going to see, much like the, the, the physical creation, is Jesus' idea and his work. We are going to see that phrase that we saw last week, in him, through him, and to him, that this new creation is created in him, for him, and by him. 
This new creation we are going to see is a reality because of his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. So one of the things we are going to learn this morning is that the church holds a crucial position in the redemptive plan of God. The church holds a critical position in the redemptive plan of God. The church is not something that can be discarded and put aside. It's like, well, I'm just redeemed. I got Jesus. I don't need a church. You cannot have. We're going to see that the church is crucial to the redemptive plan of God. So that's where we been. That's where we're going to go. So let's go ahead and look at um, our text today, starting in verse 18 of chapter 1. And he, speaking of Christ, is the head of the body, the church. All right. So Paul is now, Paul affirms the supremacy of Christ over the community of believers. Christ is the head of the church. The church is described as the body. Jesus is the head. The church is the body. That is, we as part of the church are dependent upon the head. It is he who guides us. It is he who gives us direction. And it is he who gives us life. We are utterly and completely dependent upon Christ. Let's talk a little bit about the church. What is it? Let's answer the question, what is the church and what is Jesus actually the head of? That that seems like a couple of fair questions. Well, when we read in the Bible about the church, there are many metaphors that the Bible uses to describe the church. And some of those uh, metaphors uh, might be family metaphors, how God is our father and we're brothers and sisters. We're part of a family. It uses family metaphors to describe the church. The church is often sometimes described as a building or a temple or in that we're all individual bricks put together to form this structure. The, the church is, is referred to as a bride and Christ as our bridegroom. The church is called the, the elect or the chosen of God. But here, the church is being described as the body of Christ and Christ being the head. And this may be one of the most significant and important metaphors used to describe the church. The church is the body of Christ and Christ is the head of the body. Now, one of the things we want to make certain we understand how Paul is using this idea, or this, this word church, um, we, we want to try to get a grasp of that because the word church is used in a lot of different ways in the Bible. Most of the time when we read that, without, when we read the word church in the Bible, the majority of the time it is speaking of a local church. Like, the church on Randall Place, or to the saints of the church at Rome, or even this letter, to the church at Colossae. It is speaking of a local group of individuals who have gathered together in the name of Christ, Christians who are called out and gathered together to worship Christ. But there is another way 
that the church, that word church gets used in the Bible, and I think that's how Paul is using it here, and that is speaking of the universal church. There is the local church, just like we have, like I said, Church on Randall Place, First Baptist Church, Strawberry Chapel, which is a church. These are all local churches, but we are all part of the universal church, and Paul is using that universal aspect to uh, in reference to the church. Christ is the head of the church. Now, Christ is certainly the head of the church on Randall Place, but Paul is talking about Christ being the head of the universal church. And the universal church we would describe as the elect of God at all times. The elect of God at all times. John chapter 10 uh Twenty-seven through twenty-eight could help us here. Well, one of the things we find about this universal church is the universal church is not identified by a location or a denomination. In other words, there is no zip code for the for the universal church. You can't go there. Let's go to the headquarters of the universal church. You can't go there. It doesn't exist, at least in this temporal realm. There is no boss or lead person who's the head of the church, this universal church. You can't say, well, I'm going to write a letter and complain to the universal church has no earthly head. The head of the universal church is Christ. So it is not identified by location or denomination. It is people from all ages, from all periods of time, the the universal church is that we are talking about is people from all periods of time, people from the past, even people who are yet to be born are part, who are yet to be born, that God has um, drawn out or will draw out for salvation are part of the universal church. So brothers and sisters who have not accepted Christ yet, they are still part of the universal church since God has, or um, they just haven't, accepted Christ yet. So the universal church is all people of all time, of all social rank, male and female, educated, uneducated. Unlike the the local church, there are no unbelievers in the universal church. There are no unbelievers in the universal church. There are no tares amongst the wheat. In, In a local church, you might have an unbeliever. You might have many unbelievers. The pastor could be an unbeliever. But in the universal church, I, I read one author who, who said that the universal church is the church as God sees it. The local church is the church as humans see it. So as God sees it, there are no unbelievers in the universal church. And as the head, Jesus directs and guides the church, the universal church, to carry out his purposes. So he is the head. The church is his body, and he directs and guides the church to bring about his purposes. The church is a body. That's a great picture. Christ is the head. The church is a single organism with many parts. It is more than a collection of separate individuals. It is only when those 
Those many parts are united together, joined to the head, and given the breath of the spirit, do they become a body. If a body loses its mind and its spirit, it is no longer a living body. It may have physical shape, but it is lifeless. It may be organized, but it is not alive. And the church is a living organism with many different parts. Paul talks about this very well in 1 Corinthians 12 to 13. He describes it as a body, and he says, just as the body has many parts, um, and all the parts are important, and uh, none is without... Uh, and all parts of the body are needed, so is the church. Every part is important. And Paul goes on, he says, if the whole body were an eye, then where would the hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, then where would the sense of smell be? So the whole body is made up of many, many different parts, and all parts of that body are fit together to form the living organism with Christ as its head being directed by its Lord. The church is the body of Christ. It is the organism through which Christ acts and shares his experiences. Church, when we became believers, we became part of the body of Christ who is the head. This union took place through the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians, I think I thought I'd written this down. 1 Corinthians chapter um, 12, verse 13. I'll start with 12. For just as the body is one and has many members and all members uh, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. When you became a believer, you were baptized by the spirit into the body of Christ. You became a member of this universal church by the spirit of God. And you were placed in this body and Christ is the head of this body. So that we who are in Christ, though we are many, we are one body and we are totally dependent upon Christ for direction. He controls us. This is the universal church. This local church is part of that universal church. So we are still directed by Christ. He is our head. He has given pastors and elders to, to govern and to lead and congregations to, to decide the direction of the church, of the, of the local church. But we are a visible reflection of the invisible universal church. So do we understand that? Christ is the head of the body, the church. We good there? All right. All right, well, what qualifies him to be the head of the body of the church? Well, there's another, I think, significant question. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What qualifies him to be the head of the church? He is the beginning. Let me unpack that a little bit. The idea is not just he is the start. He is the source. That's the idea behind this, this word beginning. He is the source of the church. And so just as creation, we read this in, in stanza one, and last week we saw this in the first part of this hymn, just as creation is his idea, so the new creation is his idea as well. 
as the source, he is also the sovereign, which means he has the right to determine how the church functions, how it is to be ruled, um, what its code of conduct ought to be, what rules it's supposed to follow, how worship is to be prescribed, all of those things. He is the head. He, we do not, as the body, get to make up our own rules. This idea of beginning implies that he is the founder. In fact, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6, 16, verse 18. He tells Peter, upon Peter's confession, he says, um, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Who builds the church? Christ. He is the source. It is his idea and he is its builder. I will build my church. Church, pastors and elders do not build the church. They are human agents used by the master builder to bring about his design. But they, we, are secondary. We are not primary. Christ will build his church. Christ will use missionaries and homemakers and pastors and merchants, seminary professors, children, martyrs, natural means and supernatural means to build his church. Christ builds his church. The church is his idea. He is both the source and the high, and of the highest rank. So we reject any claim, any human, any human that claims to be Christ's representative in power and authority here on earth. Like I said, you cannot go to the quote head of the church in some other state or country or nation and and complain about the church on Randall Place. You can come, you can, of course, present your complaints to the head, Christ, in prayer, or you can come to the leaders that Christ has put in charge over this particular uh, organism. Jesus is the preeminent one. He is preeminent over the church because it is his idea and he built it. So his first qualification, he's the head of the church. What makes him the head? What qualifies him? Number one, it's his idea and he built it. So that would be the first qualification. The second qualification is given in the next phrase. He's the firstborn from the dead. Okay, so who died and rose again and made you boss? That would kind of be the way this this goes. Christ died and rose again, and that's why he is the boss. He is the head of the church because it's his idea. He built it. Oh, and by the way, he died and rose again. As mentioned in verse, verse verse 15, we talked a lot about this, this term, firstborn. And in verse 15, we talked about the word firstborn having to do with the idea of rank or authority or priority. And Jesus has the highest rank. He is of the supreme priority. Others had been raised from the dead. Lazarus, just to make mention of one. Nobody had been resurrected. Jesus was the firstborn from the dead in the sense that he is the first one to be resurrected. He is not the first one to be raised from the dead, but certainly the first one to be resurrected. Resurrection and being raised from the dead are two different things. Lazarus was raised from the dead, and then he died again. Jesus was raised from the dead and he lives forevermore. He has a resurrected body and he will never face decay and death ever again. 
He is the first one raised from the dead. This is what qualifies him to be the head of the church. We serve a risen Savior. He's our head. He is the most important of all those who have been raised from the dead because without his resurrection, there could be no resurrection of others. This idea of firstborn from the dead implies that there will be more raised from the dead. He just happens to be prior in rank and position. He was the first, but the idea of first implies that there will be a second and perhaps a third and perhaps infinity. The implication of this term is that others are going to be raised from the dead. His resurrection guarantees and indeed stimulates the resurrection of all who follow. Acts chapter 26, verse 23, we read this, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to Gentiles. He is the first to rise from the dead. That means there are going to be others who follow in the resurrection. We see this also in 1 Corinthians 15.20, in Matthew 27.52 through, through 53. In this sense, he is not only the first one to experience a resurrection, he is the founder of this new order of resurrection. He is the firstborn among He is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He is the one who alone possesses the resurrection life that he gives to each of us. This is what John is saying in his first letter in chapter 5, verse 11, where he says, this is the testimony God has given us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Who ha- he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. How do we get that life? We derive it from the one who, is, who has been raised from the dead and who will never die again, who is alive forevermore. So, Jesus is the head of the church. He's the head of the church because it was his idea. He is the head of the church because he built it. He is the head of the church because he is the first one to rise from the dead and he will gather all of his people again. And in the last day, they also will rise from the dead. So, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that or that in everything, he might be preeminent. Christ is the head of the church. He is its source. It is his idea. He built it. He's the first one to rise from the dead. And there is a reason why. That he might be preeminent in all things. Christ is preeminent. Just as Christ is preeminent over creation, so he is supreme over his church. Christ is the head of the church. He is preeminent over the church. Christ's supremacy is seen to be found in his resurrection. That is, there is nothing left outside of his control. All right, so there's our first line of the hymn, that Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
We saw very similar words in the first stanza where he is the head of creation and he is the Lord of creation. He is the boss over creation because it was his idea. He made it. He sustains it. He is supreme over everything. He is also supreme over the church, which is. So he is supreme over the church. When we get into this next statement. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In your notes, this particular section is called in him, through him and to him, because we saw those exact same words in the previous stanza. Last week, we saw this exact same phrasing in him, through him and to him. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That is the totality of divine fullness dwelt in Christ. This word fullness, I've, we've, we've brought it up a couple of times in, in the book of Colossians, but let me remind you, this is a key term for Paul. It is the key term in the book of, of Colossians. You would do well if you ever have a chance to research and do a little word study on how Paul uses this word pleroma in the book of Colossians. Um, I think it would be very beneficial, but it's a key word. It means it is the totality of the divine fullness. Fullness here is um, the end, the goal, the, 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 the ultimate. Um, and so in Christ, all of the fullness, the totality of the divine of the divine is in Christ. It is the totality of divinity dwelling in Christ. We should also note that this was a term, this, this word pleroma was also a term used by the false teachers in Colossae. They taught that the divine fullness, that is the pleroma, was spread out among lesser deities or emanations. That is, there are other deities, there are other emanations, and they all share, they all have a part of the fullness of God, but none of them are the fullness of God. They all kind of share in some element of God. And Paul is saying, no, Christ is the fullness of deity in bodily form. All of God, like Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. All of the fullness of God dwells in Christ. This is an important passage of text and an important phrasing here in regards to demonstrating that Christ is God. The idea here that Paul is saying is we need to look to no one except Jesus for the full revelation of God's character. If you want to know about God's character, Christ is a demonstrates the full character of God. The fullness of God dwelt, that is, it took up a residence in Christ. And I love this idea where it says that... God was pleased that the fullness of God would dwell in Christ. He was pleased. So in him, in him, all of the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things. This idea of reconcile, maybe I should have had 
Charlie do this. His church is called Reconciled Church, so he can probably do a much better job on dealing with the, the topic of reconciliation. I will be very brief about that. But to reconcile simply means to mend a broken relationship. I think that's a fair, uh, 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 a fair definition. Uh, to reconcile is to mend a broken relationship. And through Christ... A broken relationship has been mended. He is the agent of reconciliation. That is, by him, he is the one who has accomplished this reconciliation. So, in him, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. And through him, or by him, he reconciles all things to himself. Let me also note this, the way this... uh, This sentence is is phrased, it was God's pleasure to reconcile all things. That Jesus is the agent of reconciliation. By the way, all things. Did you know all things includes um, more than just human creation? It includes... All things, thank you. But at the consummation, when Christ returns and all things are restored and made new, even the physical creation, this world, this universe will be made right, that the universe, the earth, suffers the effects of the fall. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly groan inwardly as we await the adoption of sons. So just as you and I groan to be reconciled and to be brought into the presence of God, so creation, this this earth, the, the heavens are groaning. They also were corrupted in the fall. And Christ is going to reconcile even that to himself. We talk in the book of Revelation of the new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. Peter talks about uh, a recreated heaven and earth. This is what Jesus is going to reconcile all things to himself, not just you and me, but even this fallen creation. Creation took a hit when Adam sinned. And so through him to reconcile, to fix the broken relationship, and to him, we see this, um, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. We are reconciled with him. That is, there is a restored fellowship between God and sinners. There is a restored fellowship between God and sinners. What this implies is that this implies that there was a time when we were enemies with Christ. If we have been reconciled, the implication is that there was a need to be reconciled. And that is that we were enemies of God. We were enemies of Christ. 
This verse emphasizes that God is the offended party and God is the one who takes the initiative to mend what is broken. Salvation is God's joyous work. But salvation is God's work. It is God who initiates salvation. It is God who is the offended party. And this this works a little different. Usually, um, if you offend me, Usually the way it works is that you will come to me and say, hey, man, I'm sorry, I said such and such. And then I say, oh, yeah, no, um, I understand. I forgive you. That's the way it goes. And this, the, the one who is offended, God, is the one who takes the initiative in the reconciliation. And he is the one who mends the broken relationship. He takes the initiative to mend what is broken. And this is God's joyous work. Let me take a quick detour here because we do need to deal with something and maybe we can deal with this a little more in detail on Wednesday night. But this is the, pa- the text I just read, the passage I just read is one that has been um, perverted a lot um, and has been perverted really since at least the late second century. That is, that for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the verse that many universalists will use to show that everybody is saved, or God will save everybody, and some will go as far to say even Satan and the demons will be saved because of this passage of text that he reconciles all things through the blood of his cross. We see this in Origen. Origen did many great things. He's an early church father, and he said many great things. And uh, we owe a debt of gratitude to Origen. Origen was wrong. So a common, this is a common misinterpretation of this passage of text. If all things in heaven and earth are reconciled by, by the blood of his cross, um, does this imply then that all will be saved, even Satan? Well, like I said, just a small little rabbit trail. So what do we do with it? Like I said, we can talk about this on, on Wednesday night in a little more detail. Here, here's where I would go with it, just for us here today, but here's where I would go. Is this the only place in all of Scripture that talks about who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved? The Scripture says a lot about this. So what does the entirety of Scripture say? What does the New Testament, what else does Paul say about eternal life, about salvation, about those who are going to be lost? What does the entire New Testament say? What does the entire Bible say? And what we would discover is that there are are going to be people who are saved and people who are going to be lost and their lostness is eternal. It is very, very clear in Scripture. And so we use the clear passages of text to help us understand the less clear passages of text. This one isolated verse does not establish an entire doctrine, not when we have massive amounts of text that talk about those who reject Christ 
will be lost forever. No redemption, no second chances. This is your opportunity. So that would be the first place I would go. I would also look over here what Paul says later in chapter 2, verse 15, where it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So, Colossians 1.20 teaches that through the work of Christ on the cross, God has brought his entire rebellious creation back under his rule and sovereign power. It is not talking about somehow everybody's going to be saved. So I had to take that little detour there that just so that we don't end up getting influenced by those who might teach that which is errant. So, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent preeminent and in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross and let me just pause for a moment on this on how this reconciliation was made how was peace with God made how were enemies of God brought into a peaceful relationship with God how did that happen It happened by the blood of his cross. The blood of his cross is the means by which mankind and God are reconciled. We have no reconciliation with God apart from the blood of the cross of Christ. It is the divine means by which this peace is established. So, through Christ... We are reconciled to himself. And all of that happened by the blood of his cross. I'll conclude with this. If you are a Christian church, you are part of the body of Christ. You are part of the church. That is the universal church, the invisible church. And this invisible church is made visible by the local church. Christ is the head. He is the head by the fact that it is his idea and he rose from the dead. And finally, peace with God is found in the work of Christ on Calvary. I would like to admonish us and encourage us that we should live a life with Jesus as the preeminent one. He is not just a great priority. He is not just the one who's kind of the best guy, the the guy who we uphold and honor. He is preeminent, supreme over everything, which means he is supreme over you and I. And what he, he has the right to determine how we are to live and how we are to proceed, how this church is to operate, what it means, how we are going to be reconciled back to God. Um, and all of those, all of that is determined by the one who was born, lived, died, rose again, ascended into heaven, and is coming again. Our Father God, we